One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Hello, this is The Real Story with me, Ritala Shah. This week, we're talking about the most talked about man in the UK right now. I think it's a very tough job being Prime Minister. Very tough job. I mean, obviously, if the, if the ball came loose from the back of a scrum, um, which it won't, might, or of course it would be, it'd be a great, great thing to have a crack at, but it's not going to happen. That was Boris Johnson six years ago. But that's exactly what happened this week when Boris Johnson became the British Prime Minister during a tumultuous time in the country's politics. He's promising to deliver Brexit. In 2016, the UK voted to leave the European Union. Boris Johnson's predecessor, Theresa May, couldn't persuade Parliament to follow her path to the exit door. Three years on, Boris Johnson insists he'll come out of the European Union in just 99 days. In his words, do or die. I have every confidence that in 99 days' time we will have cracked it. But you know what? We aren't going to wait 99 days because the British people have had enough of waiting. The time has come to act, to take decisions, to give strong leadership and to change this country for the better. I will take personal responsibility for the change I want to see. Never mind the backstop, the buck stops here. And I will tell you something else about my job. It is to be Prime Minister of the whole United Kingdom. And that means uniting our country, answering at last the plea of the forgotten people and the left-behind towns by physically and literally renewing the ties that bind us together. He certainly managed to achieve one thing that binds British people together, an unprecedented name recognition. His love of the limelight, his complicated personal life, his dishevelled appearance and his willingness to crack a joke mean he's known simply as Boris. This is one of the street bike stations in central London. These are bikes which you can rent and pay for by the hour. They were introduced at the time when Boris Johnson was Mayor of London and they're universally known as Boris Bikes even though they weren't even his idea. Can I just ask you, you're about to get on yes. one of these bikes. What are they known as? Boris Bikes. <laughs> Do you think it's unusual that we now have a Prime Minister who has a bike named after him and is known by his first name? Why Incredibly think... unusual, yeah, because he's a very charismatic individual, whether you like him or dislike him. Do you think that makes for good Prime Ministerial material? Well, I question me not. <laughs> what do you call those? Boris Bikes. What does it tell you about the new Prime Minister? that he's quite well known. Unfortunately, I call him Boris Bikes. What do you think of him as Prime Minister? I think he has the potential to be an utter disaster and I hope that he proves me wrong. (laughs) How unusual is it that we now have a Prime Minister who's known by his first name only? Well, I think it probably goes with his personality, doesn't it? Let's put it like that. (laughs) The views of some people out on the streets in London. Let's hear from our panel. My guests this week are Nadim Zahawi, he's a Conservative Member of Parliament who backed Boris Johnson to be leader and therefore Prime Minister. Katie Balls, who's Deputy Political Editor of The Spectator magazine, which is where Boris was once editor. Yasmin Serhan, who's the London-based staffed writer for the US publication The Atlantic. Stephanie Bolson, UK and Ireland correspondent of the German newspaper Die Welt. And George Parker, Political Editor of the Financial Times. Welcome to you all. So we heard from uh, members of the public there who clearly do associate those bikes with Boris Johnson. 
But I want to get from each of you, from your perspective as, as writers and politicians, how you view Boris Johnson. How would you characterise the man? Nadim Zahawi. Well, I've known Boris for uh, 20 years. I was running YouGov when he declared that he wanted to be mayor of London. And uh, the Conservative Party was 17 points behind uh, in London. Now an impossible uh, for a Conservative to even contemplate uh, winning. Boris put his name forward and uh, not only did he win, uh, he was returned for a second term. So he is uh, hardworking, tenacious, certainly capable uh, because you you look at his track record in London. He has a really strong track record. And I think actually... What he does do is peddle positivity. That is a great gift in a politician. Katie uh, Balls, plenty of positive adjectives there. How would you characterise Boris Johnson? I mean, I think he's a very confusing politician. He's someone who has this big personality and you constantly hear supporters talk about that presence. We've heard it on the Boris bikes. But he isn't really life and soul of the party in terms of if you think of how MPs hang out in Parliament, he doesn't go late in the bars. I think he can be actually a very private person and at times solitary. So there's two sides to his character. And I think with Boris Johnson, you're always left guessing as to which side you have and as to what he will actually do. And you see that in the sense that he surrounds himself by lots of different groups. I think he will almost be Prime Minister, it will be a court of Boris Johnson. And you never really know which side he is listening to. Enigmatic, perhaps. Yasmin Sahan. The first thing that comes to mind is that he's probably the only British politician who has name recognition on the other side of the pond, where I'm from. Um, Yeah, I think Boris, you know, is boisterous kind of bumbling personality is something that's definitely traveled, uh, probably helped by the fact that he was born in New York City. But um, he's certainly endeared himself to uh, the American president. So I think he's someone that Americans knew before and someone that they recognize and certainly will recognize more now. Stephanie Bolton. He's definitely the most known politician in in Germany. And for a long time, I think he was very much, well, laughed is probably a strong word, but people really liked him because he was he was different to any other politician as a mayor of London. I think lately people are not so fond of him anymore because they see him as the person who's responsible for Brexit. And I remember some years ago I was um, on a campaign trail with him and we went back on the train and all his advisors were on his smartphone and I approached them. I wanted to ask for an interview, obviously. And he was on the Kindle and he was reading a novel and everybody else was manically working on their smartphones except the man who was just reading a book. There's an insight. George Parker. Well, I used to sit next to Boris Johnson in the press gallery well over 20 years ago. And I remember him telling me he was going to run for parliament in an unwinnable Labour seat. And I thought his political career was actually going to be a bit of a joke. And he was just going out to get some amusing anecdotes from one of his newspaper columns. So I followed his career with great interest. I'd agree with a lot of what's been said. He's an interesting and often contradictory politician. He wants to be liked. And that's why he likes to make jokes. And sometimes the jokes are inappropriate. Um, I don't think he has any particularly great fixed principles. I remember in the run-up to the 2016 EU referendum asking him how he was going to campaign and he told me he was veering around like a supermarket trolley, which sounds to me like a slightly unusual position for someone who was about to go on to lead the campaign to leave the EU. But on the upside, as Nadine was saying, he's someone who has charisma, who is optimistic and he has a gift which is very unusual in a politician, any politician in the modern age, which is he attracts people. I remember being at the Conservative Party conference and he walked through the exhibition hall where all the trade stands were 
and within about five seconds, he was surrounded by about 20, 20 or 30 people. And within a minute, it was about 300. He draws crowds and most politicians repel people. Boris Johnson attracts them. And I think that is an interesting and very powerful characteristic for any politician to possess. Interesting uh, descriptions there. I'm going to fill in a few biographical details and, and, and unpick this a little bit more. He's the eldest of four children from a family that's almost as well known as he is. His education is at England's best known private school, Eton, followed by Oxford. That's not untypical of British prime ministers, it has to be said, but it's also a mark of his wealthy and quite privileged background. So what is it that really informs his politics? Katie Bowles, he would say, I think, that he's inspired by Churchill, but is he socially liberal or is he a libertarian or is he a one nation Tory and what does that even mean? Well he's been very keen to use the phrase one nation Tory as much as possible during the leadership contest. That was in part because the word One Nation Tory was adopted by all these MPs who were sceptical of no deal. And I think the Brexiteers wanted to get it back because it's not really supposed to be to do with that. And for a world audience, explain what we mean by a One Nation Tory. I think the problem with the term One Nation Tory is it can mean absolutely anything. It's ultimately saying that you believe that everyone should have an equal role in society, everyone should have a chance, that you want to bring everyone together. Um, so, you, so you can attribute it how you like. I think for Boris Johnson, he sees himself as a classic liberal and he sees himself as a liberal conservative. And in that, that is being socially liberal. Now, Boris Johnson's critics like to paint him as the opposite of this. And you see this with the Labour attacks on him, the Scottish Nationalist Party attacks on him. And that is this idea that he is, you know, small-minded, is is not open-minded on things like LGBT rights and so forth. Now, if you actually look at Boris Johnson's voting record, I think it is consistent with the idea that he is socially liberal. But if you look at various articles he wrote when he was a journalist, some for The Spectator, some some for The Telegraph, um, I think his critics can find phrases that mean that they can, they can question this. George Parker? I think his instincts probably are socially liberal. And how could they be otherwise, given his own complicated private life, as you were referring to at the beginning? His great-great-grandfather was of Turkish origin. And so I think Boris Johnson naturally is inclined towards an open kind of economy and in favour of immigration. But in the end, does it matter what your basic instincts are if you do the opposite in practice? So he famously in the 2016 referendum campaign stood in front of a poster um, suggesting that Turkey was about to join the EU and 60 million Turks or whatever it was were about to come to the UK. So the criticism of his, his, gui- his guiding principle overall is not whether he's a liberal conservative or anything else. It, it's, it, he will do what he has to do to advance his own career. Now, in London, a big metropolitan, cosmopolitan city, he was liberal, cuddly Boris Johnson, the one we remember hanging from a zip wire during the 2012 Olympics. In the 2016 EU referendum, he was hard Boris Johnson, the one who was warning about immigrants swamping the country. And I think in power, we're going to see the two sides of him. I think we'll see quite a hard-faced Boris when it comes to Brexit and delivering the result of the referendum. But on social policy, I think he'll be much more liberal. Nadim Zahawi, how would you uh, view what we may see of the Boris, what, what kind of Boris Johnson may we see moving forward now he is the Prime Minister? I think if you just examine his words on the steps of number 10, he is, one, is going to deliver Brexit on the 31st of October. That he's made clear by uh, the shape of the cabinet that uh, he has put together. But also, um, he had some, you know, big policies. You look at things like social care, adult social care. It's been a huge challenge for successive governments, 
Boris says he's going to deal with it once and for all. This is the kind uh, of care that's offered to elderly people or disabled absolutely. people in their own homes. A- absolutely right. Making sure that our coastal cities are you know, physically and emotionally linked to the rest of the country. He's a man who introduced the London living wage. Uh, he's a man who talked about uh, wanting to revisit an amnesty to half a million illegal immigrants. So he is, I think, um, a one-nation Tory. Yet at the same time, he actually believes that we have to leave the European Union. Where I would disagree with George slightly is I was with him throughout the whole campaign. I was also a Brexiteer. And we were both actually really, as many uh, politicians from all sides, were torn on the deal or the non-deal that Europe offered David Cameron at the time. And I wanted David to succeed and I wanted the other side to take him seriously and, and to give him the, the, the deal that demonstrates they're, they're ready for reform. Alas, that didn't happen, which is why Boris was equally torn. I remember him actually texting to say, this is terrible because there's nothing here in this deal uh, that, that uh, has come back. For him, it was all about the sort of taking back control of our democracy, of our institutions. Stephanie Bolson, given that he is a familiar name in Europe, was there surprise that he fronted this Brexit campaign? There was, of course, surprise. And and we all reported uh, in in 2016 that he actually had written these famous two articles and then made up uh, his mind. So from the very beginning, it was clear that there is somebody who's very opportunistic and was just looking at how to get to the to the top job. And therefore, as I said before, that that is why he is not massively popular, say, with the public in Europe. And then also when it comes to the political level, there's a lot of well, I would say almost mistrust. And people in, in Brussels and Berlin do not forget how he said, well, the Europe, Europeans can go and whistle about their money. I mean, these are all things that were said in public and they are there. And um, that's why I think you will have quite a hard time and there's quite a defiant mood uh, on the continent now that he's prime minister. I want to just draw out a little bit about Boris Johnson's place in popular culture in the UK. I think we've talked about the fact that he sometimes makes contradictory remarks. This is an impersonation of him on uh, a BBC radio comedy on Radio 4. It's called Dead Ringers. Mr Johnson, you got an impressive number of votes from your fellow Tory MPs, but some people say it's only because you've been making contradictory statements. Well, to be honest, I think there's a lot of truth in that suggestion, Alex. So, So you have been saying different things to different people? Absolutely not, Matt. Uh, Can't imagine where you got that idea. (laughs) Well, because of what you just said to Alex. I don't recall saying anything to her, Matt. You spoke to me just a few seconds ago. Indeed I did, Alex. Ah, I remember it well. OK, OK, let's try and get specific. What's your exact position on HS2? It's very simple. I support it. You support it? No. That's an impression. It's a joke. It's a caricature. But Nadim Zahawi, this idea that this is a man who can't make his mind up, is it something that's going to come to dog him as prime minister? Well, if you um, just reflect on his uh, cabinet uh, formation, uh, I think uh, many uh, colleagues and many friends in the media have uh, certainly been taken by surprise uh, at the decisiveness uh, and the precision with, with which he's actually uh, delivered his uh, new cabinet. Previous uh, governments have sometimes butchered 
the sort of the, the, the reshuffles, um, and they've ended up being you know, a psychodrama for many days. And I think I remember uh, Jeremy Corbyn, although it's not just Jeremy Corbyn, taking I think weeks to, to settle his cabinet, a shadow cabinet. Uh, so I think if, if you judge the man by his actions, he really does mean business. And, and as as he said on the day of of uh, the result, he said, you know, the hard work begins today. And and and, and he, he's absolutely focused and determined. And if you look at the people he surrounded himself with, he's given a big job to uh, his old partner and then opponent in the leadership in Michael Gove in preparing the country for, for Brexit. So, you know, clearly he's the, you know, very much a man in a hurry to deliver this. Let's think a little bit more about his words and his use of language. This is what he's famous for, 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 for using humour, for using long words where short words would do, for, for, for very colourful use of language. But that's what sometimes is used to paint him as a populist. And there are these parallels that are made with Donald Trump. Donald Trump is actually very keen on him. Let's just hear Donald Trump on Boris Johnson. We have a really good man is going to be the prime minister of uh, the UK now, Boris Johnson. Good man. He's tough and he's smart. Uh, They're saying Britain Trump. They call him Britain Trump. And people are saying that's a good thing, that they like me over there. That's what they wanted. That's what they need what they need. He'll get it done. Boris is good. He's going to do a good job. Yes, is is Donald Trump right to try and co-opt Boris Johnson? I've been struggling with that question this whole week because, um, you know, on the one hand, I think there are a lot of superficial similarities between the two men. Um, I mean, they're both born in New York City on opposite sides of the river. They're both kind of big personalities, uh, larger than life. They're both a little unconventional um, in their politics, certainly. There's a lot that binds these two men together. But um, I mean, I think crucially something that's always stood out to me as a very big difference between them and why I kind of bristle when people say, including Trump, that Boris is Britain's Trump is that fundamentally at the end of the day, Trump has always kind of positioned himself rightly or wrongly as an outsider, someone who's not of Washington, who came in and kind of, you know, changed the system. Whereas Boris is the system. I mean, he, as you say, he went to all of Britain's best schools where prime ministers are born and bred. Um, He is, if he's an outsider, he's the insider's outsider. So he is very much part of the elite that Donald Trump kind of shuns. Um, so in that respect, I think they're they're very different people. But I mean, it is true, obviously, from from those remarks we heard that um, clearly Donald Trump has taken a shine to the British prime minister. But it'll be interesting to see if those similarities are enough. I wonder, though, if there are shades of Trump in the use of language. I'm going to play one more little clip because it's, it's illustrative. Um, we heard at the very beginning Boris Johnson talking outside Downing Street where he talked about forgotten people and forgotten towns. This is what Donald Trump said in his inauguration speech. January 20th, 2017, will be remembered as the day the people became the rulers of this nation again. The forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. Katie Bulls, if these similarities are simply superficial, and as, as Yasmin points out, there, there is this fundamental difference of the establishment figure versus the outsider or the man who portrays himself as an outsider, 
Are the speechwriters, though, perhaps looking to each other for clues? Is there somebody in Boris Johnson's camp who's thinking about the kind of language that Donald Trump uses? I don't get the impression that Boris Johnson's team look to Donald Trump and think we can replicate that. If you look at the Brexit vote, lots of the rhetoric is about places that have been left behind, towns that have been left behind. And I I think that left behind sense is something you can see in both. But Boris Johnson, long before Donald Trump became a politician, has been using colourful language, long words. And I think it's as much his, his natural personality to almost be this bombastic figure give a speech which almost throws a curveball so what journalists thought they were covering then changes and and I think that is something that he's been doing for some time I think as two leaders you can see how they they could get on but ultimately on Brexit there are going to be so many barriers in terms of how far the UK is willing to go I'm not sure how how far a a bromance is actually going to get uh, Boris Johnson. Uh, Nadim Zahawi, does a colourful politician like Boris Johnson present a more conventional politician like you with a problem? I think uh, he presents all politicians uh, with an opportunity, and that is the opportunity to inject some energy, enthusiasm, as he's been doing. But do you have to change the way you operate? Is he he changing the game of politics? That's kind of what I'm asking. Well, I think Boris has a unique ability. I thought his speech outside the steps of number 10 were much closer to being Reagan-esque than Trump-esque. Boris's vocabulary, he has a deep well of vocabulary. He's written over a million words in articles and sometimes can be taken out of context or misquoted. He has an extraordinary ability to communicate, to build coalitions, dare I say. And actually, if I reflect on the past three years, if we've had one failure uh, as a team in government, uh, is that... You know, number 10 didn't actually build those coalitions to leave the European Union. I think Boris has that extraordinary ability. That, this, this is where he's chalk and cheese you know, between him and, 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 and Theresa May. Easing okay. ability to communicate a message of and- hope and also very clear way forward. George Parker, he would say that he's inspired by Churchill. Is that something that he can use to his advantage in the next few weeks and months to come? Well, I think in his own mind, he is he's Churchill. He wrote a biography of Churchill, which was, to be honest, more of a book about Boris Johnson than about Churchill. But such were the comparisons that were being uh, drawn. He loves Churchill's turn of a phrase. He, you know, he was and is actually a brilliant journalist. And I always got my colleagues when I worked in Brussels to read some of Boris Johnson's reporting from Brussels, not because... Um, his stories were necessarily true. And I wanted my journalists generally to be sticklers for accuracy, but just because of the way he found a way of using vocabulary to describe a city which was essentially faceless, full of politicians that no one had ever heard of. And he was a brilliant user of the English language. And I think that's still the case. And just as uh, Churchill wrote history, Boris Johnson will presumably be hoping to write his own history and hoping that he won't be the shortest-lived British Prime Minister of all time. And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service, this week taking a closer look at the UK's new Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Each week we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. There are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped to shape our lives and the 
places we live. There are five podcasts a week and an incredible archive to delve into. Do please let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. Email us therealstory at bbc.co.uk. But now let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Ritula Shah, looking at Prime Minister Boris Johnson and my guests. We're joined by Nadim Zahawi, Conservative Member of Parliament, who backed Boris Johnson to be leader and therefore Prime Minister. Yasmin Serhan, London-based staff writer for the US publication The Atlantic. Stephanie Bolton, UK and Ireland correspondent of the German newspaper Die Welt. And George Parker, political editor of the Financial Times. Now, earlier in the programme, we discussed Boris Johnson's political influences. But now I want to turn to what is undoubtedly the elephant in the room, and that is Brexit. What will Boris Johnson do with Brexit? During his first address to Parliament as Prime Minister, he reaffirmed his commitment to leave the EU by October the 31st, and he urged Brussels to rethink its opposition to reopening Britain's withdrawal agreement uh, from the EU. The Prime Minister also stressed that while he'd prefer to leave with a deal, he was willing to leave without one. Stephanie Bolson, do you think he can go to places that Theresa May simply couldn't? For the time being, I really doubt it. I mean, talking to people in Berlin and Brussels in the last days, um, I was almost surprised by this mood of almost a bullish mood. Someone, a senior official, said yesterday to me, look, we are pretty relaxed about no deal. And if you look at the statements by Ursula von der Leyen, the German incoming new president of the European Commission, and also by Angela Merkel, the uh, Chancellor of Germany, they both spoke about responsibility that comes with him now taking office. They say... We want to work together and we will obviously talk again, but there's a lot of responsibility Boris Johnson is taking on now. And I think this is indirectly saying if there is a no deal, we see the person responsible for that is Boris Johnson and not the Europeans. And I think this is the big fight that is coming our way. George Parker, is there lots of optimism, something that Boris Johnson's keen to stress, without necessarily anything behind it, beyond a determination, absolute clarity of position and of of destination? Well, Boris Johnson doesn't do detail famously, and that certainly applies to the detail of a European negotiation. Over the first few hours of his premiership, we heard a lot about optimism and energy and pluck, one of his favourite words, and a determination to show that Britain's best days are in the future, but very little in the way of detail of how he's going to get around the problems that Theresa May encountered over the last two years and his insistence that the withdrawal agreement that Theresa May negotiated basically be ripped up is something the EU is not prepared to accept. And in his uh, first Commons appearance on Thursday, Boris Johnson seemed to be suggesting that These were his red lines and he was waiting to hear from the EU as to whether they were prepared to negotiate on his terms. Frankly, that is going to be a dialogue of the death. And I think he is going to have to start showing a willingness to compromise if he thinks the EU is going to do the same thing. But to pick up on some of the stuff that Nadim Zahawi was saying in the first half, some of his appointments, and in particular the appointment of Dominic Cummings, the person who masterminded uh, the Vote Leave campaign, the campaign that, that essentially led... Britain to vote to leave in the referendum. He is now at the heart of Boris Johnson's government. He's a person who has shown that he can persuade people to take positions they didn't know they believed in. Why can't he pull the same (laughs) trick again? Well, Dominic Cummings has many talents. He's a brilliant campaigner, but he's not known as someone who's much of a compromiser. I think anyone who's worked with him in the British government would would testify to that. Um, Boris Johnson surrounded himself with a lot of people who think that a no-deal exit is something which would be fairly easy to organise. 
that wouldn't do massive damage to the British economy. I think there are a lot of people listening to this programme involved in business who would take a, a different view to that. And I think that's the danger, that in the end, there's going to be a massive publicity campaign in Britain telling people to prepare for a no-deal exit. And in the end, it might become a self-fulfilling prophecy, unless, of course, Parliament is able to step in and uh, stop it happening. Nadine Zahawi, how would you describe Boris Johnson's strategy as far as Brexit's concerned? Well, I think what Boris has demonstrated over the past few days is that he will absolutely prepare the country to leave on WTO terms if we have to. Not that that is his preferred option, but unless your interlocutors on the other side of a negotiating table believe that you're prepared to walk away, then they will not actually move on their position. So I think you look at the appointments he's made, his chancellor, effectively his chief financial officer, is going to prepare the country for WTO Brexit if we have to. Department for exiting the EU But there, there is might be there. people who, who are a bit puzzled because Boris Johnson actually voted for Theresa May's withdrawal deal when it was put to a vote for the third time to the Commons. So why is it that this person is now so opposed to this deal that was in circulation that's there to be taken if, if the government should so wish? Well, he's also the same person who resigned famously, as did Dominic Raab from Theresa May's cabinet because they felt that her deal and the backstop as being one of the major... Uh, well, uh, let, let's talk about that a little bit more and let's explain it. So it has been this Irish backstop has been a key stumbling block in the t- deal that was negotiated by Theresa May. Now, it was essentially an insurance policy designed to ensure there wouldn't be a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. But it would see Northern Ireland staying aligned to some of the rules of the EU single market. And it would also involve a temporary single customs territory, which would effectively keep the whole of the UK in the EU customs union, should it come into force. Critics, and there were many, feared it would be used to permanently trap the UK in the EU customs union, which would then prevent the country from making its own trade deals. This is what Boris Johnson told MPs about it. No country that values its independence and indeed its self-respect could agree to a treaty which signed away our economic independence and self-government as this backstop does. A, A time limit is not enough. If an agreement is to be reached, it must be clearly understood that the way to the deal goes by way of the abolition of the backstop. For our part, we are ready to negotiate in good faith an alternative. And this was the response from the leader of the opposition, Jeremy Corbyn. I'm deeply alarmed to see no plan for Brexit. He was in the cabinet that accepted the backstop and, of course, voted for it on the 30th of March this year. It would be welcome if he could set out what he finds so objectionable, having voted for it less than four months ago. Can he explain this flip-flopping? Stephanie Bolson, do you think there is now an understanding of how difficult the backstop has proven to be for the UK in Brussels? Clearly, the Irish government's stance hasn't changed on this. Of course, there is a certain understanding why this is such a big issue, because... um, 
I mean, the UK, with this backstop, accepts the rules and has actually no say in it anymore. But I think what is really something that many people, especially in Berlin, they really struggle with the idea that the peace process in Northern Ireland has so little significance in all that. And um, I think the Irish government was also very good at making the other 26 member states understand how important this is. And it was interesting, for example, to see Angela Merkel travel to Dublin and speak to people who lived on the border. And it's something that there is a certain perception in on the continent that there is an arrogance by the Conservative Party about this crucial issue and about peace and conflict. And I think that makes it uh, even harder also for the EU leaders to communicate to their voters why they would suddenly turn around and say, OK, we abolish the backstop. Nadim Zahawi, is it arrogance? No, I don't think it's arrogance at all. I think that Boris Johnson will set out very clearly that we want to do a fair deal clearly being trapped into a backstop where there is no mechanism to exit is not a fair deal. Being trapped into, as you described, a customs union where the EU would essentially be able to trade the UK market without us having a say in it is also not a fair deal. And I think Boris is essentially saying, look, if you want to take the best parts of the withdrawal agreement, you know, issues around guaranteeing the rights of European citizens, which I thought was an excellent opener from him, is a, a fantastic thing to do. But let's try and take this best parts of what was a defunct agreement and then negotiate a new agreement and do that as quickly as possible. George Parker, Otherwise, we will have no choice but to walk away. I George, don't think... George Parker, is, is what's changed? There are entrenched positions on both sides and both sides would say there are very good reasons for those positions. Is what's changed, though, that this is now a government that is appears to be determined to push through Brexit, do or die, to use uh, the phrase that Boris Johnson adopted, and is willing to go for no deal. Will that make a difference? Well, I mean, I think the starting point is that the EU thinks that it's entirely possible Boris Johnson might see through this threat. But if he does, it will be far more detrimental to the UK than it will be to the rest of the European Union. And I think that um, just as the UK has its own political interests, the EU has an interest in defending its single market and also defending its own rules. So I think if it push came to shove, they would be prepared to see Boris Johnson leave without a deal. I think the EU is prepared to move a bit. I think its room for manoeuvre is more limited than Boris Johnson thinks. I think they can make some tweaks to the language around the future relationship that the two sides want to reach. But the problem is on the backstop, which is enshrined in the treaty that Theresa May has agreed, I don't think there's any appetite at all for deleting that or for ripping up the agreement. After all, it was painstakingly agreed over two years. And Nadim says, well, we can keep the best bits of it. What he means is that we can keep the bits that the UK likes, for example, guaranteeing citizens' rights, because, of course, lots of UK citizens live in the rest of the EU and want their rights guaranteed as well. But we don't want to pay £39 billion and we don't like the Irish backstop. I mean, that is a that is a, not a negotiating position. That's just us laying down terms which people in the rest of Europe won't be prepared to accept. So there's going to have to be a meeting halfway. Otherwise, we will be heading towards a no deal. And if Parliament blocks a no deal then I'm afraid we'll be heading towards a general, general election sooner rather than later. And that's another point, isn't it, Nadim Zahawi? Boris Johnson may have changed those who are in government in power, but the arithmetic, the divisions within the House of Commons haven't changed at all. And this is still the same House of Commons that rejected 
Theresa May's withdrawal deal, but also rejected the idea of leaving with no deal. How can he or anyone, any leader, just through force of optimism, change those very real divisions within within the House of Commons? No doubt it will be challenging, but I think two things have happened since those votes. One is the European elections, where the Conservative Party polled 9%, and then, of course, the Peterborough by-election, again demonstrating that unless the two mainstream parties actually deliver on the promise that we both made, Labour and Conservative, that we would actually deliver Brexit, then we will unleash forces in our politics that we don't know where this ends up. And we saw that with the pop-up Brexit party taking a massive share of the vote in the European elections and, of course, again, doing well in the Peterborough uh, by-election. But ultimately, if you step back and sort of look at this thing, George says we only want to do the things that are good for us. That's not what Boris is saying. He's saying we will pay the $39 when we have a deal. That has been the position of the previous Conservative government, i.e. that the whole deal has to be agreed, not parts of the deal. Otherwise, there is no deal. And the other thing I would add, if you look at the contingency planning from the EU side, they give a sort of nine-month standstill on things. Most, one of the most important things for my constituents, for example, because I've got Jaguar Land Rover and Aston Martin, is the supply chain and movement of automotive sector parts. Now, the EU are saying there's a nine-month standstill where UK hauliers can actually have free movement okay, across the whole so of European Union. Things, things will carry as on. It may not be as disruptive as perhaps was first it, it, anticipated. It is, it is not okay. ideal, and yeah. but we would a- absolutely be able to manage it. Yeah, Yasmin, you're obviously watching these debates go on between the UK and Europe. But Donald Trump actually has been very keen to see Brexit happen and has also been very keen perhaps on what uh, used to be described as a hard Brexit. I'm not sure how meaningful that term is anymore. (laughs) Do you think that there will be in the United States a sort of a, a collective cheer going up that there is now a leader who signs up to that same vision very clearly? Indeed, there was certainly a lot of enthusiasm coming from the president, I think specifically about the prospects of striking a trade deal. He says he makes the best of them. Um, I think that's kind of where the enthusiasm comes from. to, To what extent the president or the broader administration are giving thought to the repercussions of a no deal exit and what it would mean vis a vis Britain and the EU more broadly, I'm not totally convinced. I think specifically it's the trade deal that they're after and the idea of being able to do it sooner rather than later. Something, though, that I I think is worth noting and to to be kind of tread upon with caution is the fact that ultimately at the end of the day, despite the special relationship and the deep defense and security ties that both countries have, there, there is a lot that divides Britain and the US at the moment, particularly in foreign policy. Look at Iran, look at Huawei, climate change even. These are issues that that I think are significant. And if we've learned one thing from this administration, it's that it's very transactional. And um, I think these divisions will matter. So it will be interesting to see with regards to a trade deal and how that comes about, whether the administration tries to push Britain in different ways to kind of meet them on issues that where they are, particularly in Iran. Well, let's take let's talk about that a little bit more. Sure. And Iran is is a crisis that is unfolding as we speak. So essentially, Iran seized a British flag tanker in the Strait of Hormuz, apparently in retaliation for the detention of one of its own tankers by British forces off Gibraltar. 
Nadim Zahawi, how do you think that the UK government under Boris Johnson might deal with this? He's put in office, in the Foreign Office, Dominic Raab, who is a relatively inexperienced MP. He's held office for a short time. Eyebrows have been raised by that appointment. How can they handle such a delicate situation? Is this administration equipped to do it? Well, I worked very closely with uh, Dom Raab during the campaign and, of course, uh, moving across to back Boris as well. I think he's one of the most capable politicians in Parliament and certainly is capable of being a great foreign secretary for this country. Boris Johnson and the government have already indicated that there will be a royal Navy escort for British-flagged ships will have to go through the Straits of Hormuz. And I think we do need to de-escalate the situation. But but de-escalating the situation may put the UK on the opposite side of the United States. And for Boris Johnson, as a new Prime Minister coming in, as Theresa May learnt as well, uh, it's very difficult to maintain that relationship with President Trump if you're not on the same page as him, it, you sort of there's a for us or against us kind of uh, notion there. Well, I think that our alliance certainly is important in the region. We work very closely together in Iraq to defeat Daesh, ISIS. Same again in Syria and other parts of North Africa. So you're absolutely right to say that we work very closely together. That does not mean that friends don't have disagreements, take a different point of view on the uh, JCPOA, so, the uh, Iranian uh, nuclear deal. So, George, George deal. Parker, there, there is definitely a disagreement on the Iran nuclear deal. The UK, along with other EU nations, has tried to distance itself from, from the US when it comes to Iran and the, the US decision to withdraw from the nuclear deal. How awkward is that for an incoming prime minister who wants to strike a trade deal with the United States, wants to have good relationships with the United States as it pulls away from the EU? Well, I think there are going to be a whole range of issues where the new British prime minister is going to find himself in a very difficult dilemma because culturally and politically, Britain is much more closely aligned on a whole range of issues with our European partners than it is with the United States. And you mentioned Iran, you can talk about climate change, you can talk about Huawei and things like that. And the British Prime Minister, I think, will find himself in a position where he's so desperate to try and strike a trade deal with the United States, because frankly, it's the only trade deal that could come close to replicating or replacing some of the lost trade we'll suffer when we leave the European Union with our closest trading partners, that he will be prepared to put himself in danger, at least, of appearing to be Donald Trump's poodle. And we saw a little bit of that uh, a couple of weeks ago with the case of the British ambassador, Kim Darrick, who got involved in a spat with Donald Trump. And essentially, Boris Johnson came down on the side of Donald Trump over our most experienced and top diplomats. So I think there are going to be a whole load of issues there. And I think Boris Johnson will find very quickly, if he hasn't already, that Donald Trump will be a very capricious friend. He doesn't use America first as just an empty slogan. He actually means it. And just to go back to your early question about what Donald Trump thinks about Brexit, it's quite interesting that the two people who seem to be most enthusiastic about Brexit among foreign leaders are Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, both of whom are quite happy to see the European Union being weakened because they see the Europe and a strong Europe as a strategic threat. Um, yeah, and to George's point, I, I think he's absolutely right that Boris will have to play an interesting balancing act of keeping a close relation, a close friend close, but also not too close because, as we know, even though Trump said, I think, in the earlier clip that, you know, they love me over there. I mean, recent polling has shown that, in fact, I think it it was a YouGov poll that said that a majority of the British people did see that Britain-Trump connection. But 
some 40 percent or so didn't necessarily think it was a good thing. So I, I think, you know, it's going to be difficult for him to both maintain that close relationship, but also maintain enough distance so as not to suffer at home for that comparison. And Stephanie, just to go back to that point about President Putin, there's a clip of Russian television that's doing the rounds on social media that has a, a Russian TV host welcoming Boris Johnson's leadership because they believe that it, he'll inject instability into European politics, which will be to Russia's advantage. Is that overblown, do you think, as an idea? In any case, it's a very complex relationship. If you if you look at what Russia has been doing in the UK in the last years, whether it's the Skripal attack or the uh, Litvinenko murder, there is a lot of it's, it's a very difficult relationship. And therefore, Germans and other Europeans know that Britain will always communicate and seek alliances with the Europeans. So everything there are so many layers to all the relationship and so many consequences. Whether it's Iran, whether it's Russia, whether it's the relationship to the US that in the end there is an interdependence between Europe and, and the United Kingdom. I think there is this fear that, of course, this comparison between Trump and Boris Johnson... There's a certain fear that um, the United Kingdom is really drifting away from Europe. And um, because of the strength of UK in defence and security, that's something that many in Europe will fear. Well, you, you can't uh, take geography out of the um, out of the equation, of course. And uh, Stephanie was saying that you know, there, there are many bonds that tie the Europeans together and we have mutual interests. I just think it's sad really that sort of we are culturally so aligned to this group of countries on, in continental Europe. We've built up these intense relationships in terms of trade, in terms of people, in terms of free movement. It's been an unbridled success for this country. And we're about to engage in the first ever trade negotiation, in this case with the EU, where we talk about what barriers we intend to put up. That's never been done before, in the hope that one day we might be able to strike a trade deal with Donald Trump or President Xi Jinping in China. So look, I mean, in, in the end, geography will means we'll always be working closely with our European partners. But if you're outside the club, you're outside the club. It's a different kind of relationship. To circle back then to Boris Johnson, let's just look for a moment, if we may, at the state of British politics and longevity. Boris Johnson is very positive, is clearly it's he's in his first few days. He can afford to, in a sense, bask in that honeymoon that new leaders have. But he does head a divided party. George Parker, do you think an election is almost inevitable? Can the Conservatives remain united behind him? Well, I think there will be an election in the next eight or nine months. In any event, I mean, a government can't stagger on with a majority of just two for very long. I think the only question is whether it's an election in the autumn, which will be kind of forced on Boris Johnson because there's an impasse in Brussels and a standoff in the House of Commons. Nothing's happening on Brexit. And he has to go back to the country to get a mandate to take us out of the European Union without a deal. Or I think this is Boris Johnson's preferred scenario, and I agree with Nadim Zahawi on this, that you know a deal is done. It goes through Parliament. Brexit is executed. Boris Johnson spends the next few months starting to unite the country, spending a bit of money in deprived communities, boosting public services. Then he has an election next spring. And in those circumstances, I could quite easily see him beating the Labour Party and storming to quite a big majority. The only trouble is he's got to get through Brexit first. Nadim Zahawi, are you confident that, that, the, that the second outcome can be the one that uh, actually transpires? I think it has to be the one that transpires. We have to deliver Brexit by the 31st of October. Otherwise, we are toast. Before we wrap up, I want to give each of you a chance to just think about a big question to end with. Uh, let's hear from Sir Nicholas Soames. He's a grandson of Winston Churchill, the wartime prime minister who Boris Johnson describes as his political inspiration. 
Here's Sir Nicholas speaking about his concerns uh, when Mr Johnson was campaigning for the leadership of the party. I texted him last weekend and I said to him, when Churchill became Prime Minister, on the day he became Prime Minister, he went back to his flat where he met my grandmother and his children and they drank a, a bottle of champagne and he proposed a toast, which I quoted to Boris, of here's to not it up. And I said to Boris, I can't possibly vote for you. I can't vote for you. But I pray for all our sakes, you don't it up. That's Sir Nicholas Soames. I'm going to use the polite word. Will he mess it up? That's the question I want to ask each of you. Yasmin, do you think he'll mess it up? As we've been discussing, he faces all the same challenges that Theresa May did and then some. I worry that for his sake, he he may yet be an, another prime minister to be to have his legacy pretty much just consumed by Brexit. So, I mean, who's really to say? But given the fact that all the challenges remain the same, it's hard to see where the light is at the end of the tunnel. But for his sake, I hope he finds it. Stephanie. It's so difficult to say. Uh, there's um, a different reading in, in Brussels, at least, that either the UK is going for no deal or he might be the great communicator who suddenly can sell the existing deal with a couple of tweaks and everything will be well. And I, I wouldn't I wouldn't dare saying which one of those we are going to live through and experience and, and pay the price for. George Parker. Well, I think it's entirely possible he could mess it all up, in which case he'll be remembered as the shortest lived and most disastrous British Prime Minister of all times. But I, I agree with Stephanie. If he can somehow find a way of compromising, of selling a deal to the House of Commons and delivering Brexit, then given the weakness of the current opposition parties in the UK, particularly the Labour Party, then I think you can see a path through it and, and onto the sunlit uplands he likes to talk about. Nadim Zahawi, I'm going to give you the last word. Well, Nicholas Soames is a dear friend and it was good to see that he tweeted out, uh, commenting on the appointment of Mark Spencer, Boris Johnson's chief whip. Uh, What a great appointment. So uh, uh, that certainly bodes well. Uh, What I would say to you is this. We now have a prime minister, probably the first Conservative prime minister, who really actually does believe in Brexit. And I think that is going to be the the great differentiator here, is you have someone who has not only a very clear view of how he gets the country to the other side on the 31st of October, but has actually built a team around him. So, so he's, he's not going to mess it up. As he, as I don't said. think he will mess it up. I actually think he will deliver. I'm very optimistic that he will deliver on the 31st of October. I wouldn't have expected you to say anything else. Nadeem Zahawi, thank you very much. That's it for this week on The Real Story. Thank you very much to all of our guests, Nadeem Zahawi, a Conservative MP, Yasmin Serhan of The Atlantic, Stephanie Boltson of Deve- and George Parker of the Financial Times and also to Katie Balls of The Spectator who joined us in the first half. That's it from me, Ritha Lashan, the whole team. That's The Real Story for this week. Thank you for listening.